this is Mike from Political Theory and um, other stuff to do a quick to do a quick intro for this episode. Uh, Paul and I dive deeper into capitalist realism. We have the um, traditional issues with the uh, with sound, but there's this weird thing where sometimes it sounds like I made an edit when I didn't make an edit, like a, a rough edit. It just drops. I'm not sure if that was like internet or, or what, but that's there. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we love Paul, but he does a little of his trailing off and I keep the ums strong as well as the lack of, of reading skills, you know, super strong. Unfortunately, I don't think there is a word of the day, but, but we do a great job remixing metaphors. For those of you that don't know, remixing metaphors is actually just mixing up your metaphors, but it sounds cooler if you call it remixing metaphors. So look out for, uh, for those. Those might be fun to try to catch. Um, yep. I hope you all enjoy the episode. Uh, welcome back to uh, another episode of political theory and um, other stuff. We're here, chapter two, capitalist realism, that and the the chapter's called uh, "What if you held a protest and everyone came." Do you want to start it off, Paul, or do you want me to start sure it off? Will. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> I'll start it off. I'm pretty excited. We're into a shorter chapter, so we should yep. easily get this done today. Okay. Uh, what if you held a protest and everyone came? In the cases of gangster rap and Elroy, capitalist realism takes the form of a kind of super identification with capital at its most pitilessly predatory, but this need not be the case. In fact, capitalist realism is very far from precluding a certain anti-capitalism. After all, and as Zizek has provocatively pointed out, anti-capitalism is widely disseminated in capitalism. Time after time, the villain in Hollywood films will turn out to be the evil corporation. Far from undermining capitalist realism, this gest gestural, gestural anti-capitalism actually reinforces it. Take Disney slash Pixar's WALL-E, uh, parentheses 2008. The film shows an earth so despoiled that human beings are no longer capable of inhabiting it. We're left in no doubt that consumer capitalism and corporations, or rather one mega corporation by and large, is responsible for this depredation. And when we see eventually, or and when we see eventually see the human beings in off-world exile, they are infantile and obese, interacting via screen interfaces, carried around in large motorized chairs, and supping indeterminate slop from cups. Delicious. <laughs> uh, have here is a version of control and communication, much as Jean Baudrillard, Baudrillard mm -hmm. understood it in which subjugation no longer takes the form of a subordination to an intrinsic spectacle, but rather invites us to interact and participate. It seems that the cinema audience is itself the object of the satire, which prompted some right-wing observers to recoil in disgust, condemning Disney Pixar for attacking its own audience. Uh, I just want to interrupt real quick. What a conservative move, or move to get like mad by assuming that you're being called out. Like at no point in Wally were they like these damn Republicans got us here, but in sipping their like Mountain Dew <clears throat> and their fucking rascals or like right. God damn it, Disney, how dare you mock me? <laughs> right, right, totally. Uh, 
<laughs> but this kind of irony feeds rather feeds rather than challenges capitalist realism. A film like Wally exemplifies what Robert Fowler has called interpassivity. The film performs our anti-capitalism for us, allowing us to continue to consume with impunity. The role of capitalist ideology is not to make an explicit case for something in the way that propaganda does, but to conceal the fact that the operations of capital do not depend on any sort of subjectivity or of any <clears throat> sort of subjectively assumed belief. It is impossible to conceive of fascism or Stalism without propaganda but capitalism can proceed perfectly well, in some ways better without anyone making a case for it. Uh, I'll cut there uh, just to talk a little bit. Okay. Yeah, dude. Uh, I think that's something we kind of like touched on before, just how, it's so frustrating. How do you be negative about something that has its negativity built in? You know, I mean, like capitalism self-mocks all the time. And while it's like, I super enjoy things that mock capitalism it definitely just hammers in sometimes they're like oh fuck dude how can we even escape this because like in the mocking of it all capitalism still wins out in like all of these like films yeah absolutely Zizek's counsel here remains invaluable. If the concept of ideology is the classic one in which the illusion is located in knowledge, he argues, then today's society must appear post-ideological. The prevailing ideology is that of cynicism. People no longer believe in ideological truth. They do not take ideological propositions seriously. The fundamental level of ideology, however, is not an illusion masking the real state of things, but that of an unconscious fantasy structuring our social reality itself. And at this level, we are, of course, far from being a post-ideological society. Cynical distance is just one way to blind ourselves to the structural power of ideological fantasy. Even if we do not take things seriously, even if we keep an ironical distance, we are still doing them. Capitalist ideology in general, Zizek maintains, consists precisely in the overvaluing of belief in the sense of inner subjective attitude at the expense of the beliefs we exhibit and externalize in our behavior. So long as we believe in our hearts that capitalism is bad, we are free to continue to participate in capitalist exchange. According to Zizek, capitalism in general relies on the structure of disavowal. We believe that money is only a meaningless token of no intrinsic worth, yet we act as if it has a holy value. Moreover, this behavior precisely depends upon the prior disavowal. We are able to fetishize money in our actions only because we have already taken an ironic distance uh, towards money in our hands. The stuff about ideology, it, on the one hand, it makes sense to me. On the other, it is uh, um, a little, um, maybe a little like over my head, maybe a little bit. We still, I, I think it's like, and I could be totally wrong, but I think it's that we aren't totally post-ideological, uh, at least in America. We still have... Well, that's what he's saying, right? He says, like... Right. Yeah, like, we're not there. Like, we are cynical about these things. 
but there's still things we pretend to value. We still do the Pledge of Allegiance before shit. We still sing, you know, the national anthem at sporting events. A lot of people, it's kind of similar to uh, just like being raised Catholic and showing up on Easter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And more importantly too, like the economic structure, we still, you know, even though like an example, may, maybe this isn't what he's talking about, but like an example for me is like, I'm here doing this podcast, you know, that has a very like um, uh, anti-capitalist theme to it. But then I'm, I'm subscribed to a subreddit about watches and usually the watches that are on that subreddit are like high-end watches and like yeah maybe part of that is the craftsmanship and I'm like wow that's really like that craftsmanship is is incredible but I would assume on an unconscious level part of it is about the wealth of those pieces you get what yeah. I'm saying no well and it you know I mean it's one of those things the monetary wealth I mean you know capitalism just attacks all kinds of nice things like it comes down I think the world of art is very similar to that you know I mean most artists aren't really recognized until their pieces are absurdly expensive you know I'm not saying for people who are really into art that's the case but just like in general if you have like a passing interest um, you're probably not going to know about a lot of paintings that are worth $15 right Uh, but you'll probably have a pretty decent knowledge of all paintings that are you know i.e priceless or worth Mm -hmm. $5 but you know once again it's like another thing where it's like fuck dude so money is what gives value to these things Mm -hmm. you know craftsmanship or whatever yeah absolutely it's it's just yeah i don't know how how you would escape it i do you know i mean i think that thing about money being a meaningless token of no intrinsic worth yet we act as if it has a holy value you know i mean that's the difference in my head with a lot of things is that uh we have this system where we just let the money fucking float out and then you know like and build numbers in people's bank accounts and shit and in that sense when it's there, to me, it is more make-believe. And it would just be nice to have a society that used those funds to have things you could show for. Um, you know, that $40 billion wasn't in Turks and Caicos, it was in a healthcare plan. In my head, if I had money, I would way rather do stuff um, that had tangible results rather mm. than building stockpiles, smog style. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, obviously we do really fetishize money and... Um, mm-hmm. And that is like key to the ideology of capitalism, but it's not often thought about or or talked about, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, what else do people care if you just have a ton of it and don't do anything with it? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just such a, it's the only thing you can collect that it's like cooler the less you do with it. Um, (laughs) Corporate anti-capitalism wouldn't matter. Oh, yeah. Yep. Corporate anti-capitalism wouldn't matter if it could be differentiated from an authentic anti-capitalist movement. Yet, even before its momentum was stalled by the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center, the so-called anti-capitalist movement seemed also to have conceded too much to capitalist realism, since it was unable to posit a coherent alternative political economic model to capitalism. The suspicion was that the actual aim was not to replace capitalism, but to mitigate its worst excesses. And since the form of its activities tended to be the staging of protests rather than political organization, there was a sense that the anti-capitalism movement consisted of making a series of hysterical demands, which it didn't expect to be met. Protests have formed a kind of carnivalesque background noise to capitalist realism, and the anti-capitalist protests share rather too much with hyper-corporate events like 2005's Live 8, 
with their exorbitant demands that politicians legislate away poverty. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of, I think, the issue is that our belief system doesn't need to like, and this is just me personally saying, it doesn't need to live in the same realm as libertarians, where there's like nothing you could provide that makes sense. There is structure you could provide. Um, There are other concepts to capitalism that I think needs to be hit at just as much as being anti-capitalism. Because if you're constantly being negative towards capitalism, but you don't have a replacement in mind, um, then it really is just fucking, you know, barking in the woods at nothing almost. Uh, Like, I don't, I'm sure you remember Occupy Wall Street, um, but I was super into Occupy Wall Street until I went and sat with a group of people at Occupy Wall Street and was just like, oh shit, there is, nobody has any idea what's going on here. Um, And so it was a cool movement and we know what we're angry at, but if nobody is providing kind of content as to a, a different direction, then what the fuck all this arguing? Um, which, which is, yeah, sorry. Uh, which is, you know, why one of the things that attracted me to the Who Dies article, um, because, yeah. it, you know, at the end there, they did have a, a roadmap for at least short-term goals, you know? And I think that's that's important for sure. Well, right, and without that roadmap, you'll always end up, at the very least on face value, um, kind of losing a logical debate. If somebody can get you down to the point where you're just admitting that you're upset at things but don't have alternatives, um, then, you know, it's you can't progress the conversation that much farther from that point, I guess. Yeah, I'll say two things. One, I think more important than the, the debate is you'll lose momentum, right? Which we saw with Occupy, you know, there just wasn't um, a consistent momentum because people didn't know where to go from that moment. But then the other thing I'll say is that at least when when I have that debate with people, when they, they say, well, but uh, you don't have a, a plan forward to move forward, I'll say, I'm most concerned about us admitting there's a problem yeah it's kind of like um if we don't both admit the roof is leaking then we can't even talk about if we should fix the roof if we should replace the roof if you know we shouldn't even have a roof whatever we can't do that and so until you are willing to admit that yes i agree with you that all of these issues are a problem and not just you the individual i'm debating with the majority of society, then I'm going to keep complaining until I try to get people on, right. on my I, page. I guess I just get frustrated when they're like, well, yeah, the roof's leaky, but you think it'd be better if we didn't have a fucking roof? Yeah. Uh, just that sort of shit is like, no, nah, dude, I think we could actually uh, repair that leak right there. And then in stages, uh, we can replace this roof so that we don't have to let rainwater in. Uh, we can section off whatever I'm yep. going no no i i I totally hear you um i just you know there is the trap is that we don't and and this is this is one of the reasons why i wanted to do the podcast because i wanted to read more stuff to try to get a a better fleshed out understanding of what's wrong and why it's wrong right like what is making the situation the way it is and then some roadmaps forward but it's also easy to get stuck in the the immediate and get bogged down in like, okay, how can we expand 
the Affordable Care Act, right? Rather than thinking about how can we decommodify fucking healthcare, period. Right. You get what no. I'm saying? No, like, and I think, so, yeah. I just think um, they're both very uh, worthwhile pursuits. Yes. They yep. should be both very focused on. Like, if you focus on one too much, it'll skew the other way. As from my position, at least on the online debates and things that I tend to watch, I just wish there were more voices that had that road path forward. Mm -hmm. Just being like, all right, we're here. This all sucks. Um, a lot of those voices exist, but then often can be put into a corner, I guess. Right. Yep. It's yep. just like, okay. uh, which is why I really want to be doing this because yes, I firmly would love to grasp my head around a more logical path forward that I could easily discuss. Yeah. Without kind of, you know, was a strange kind of protest, a protest that everyone could agree with. Who is it who actually wants poverty? And is it not that Live 8 was a degraded form of protest? On the contrary, it was in Live 8 that the logic of the protest was revealed in its purest form. The protest impulse of the 60s posited a malevolent father, the harbinger of a reality of principle that supposedly, cruelly, and arbitrarily denies the right to total enjoyment. This father has unlimited access to resources, but he selfishly and senselessly hoards them. Yet it is not capitalism, but protest itself, which depends upon this figuration of the father. And one of the successes of the current global elite has been their avoidance of identification with the figure of the hoarding father. Even though the reality they impose on the young is substantially harsher than the conditions they protested against in the 60s. Indeed, it was, of course, the global elite itself, in the form of entertainers such as Richard Curtis and Bono, which organized the Live 8 event. Yeah, fucking, I, uh, in my personal life, just with some of my relatives, get into these sort of talks a lot, where it's just like, dude, the conditions now are actually, um, from an income level, much worse uh, than when you all were very angry. Now, I will always say that you know, I don't want to take the societal benefits that those protests allowed. The civil rights movement was obviously amazing and paved the way for, uh, I'm not saying that we're in an era where those things don't need to be worried about, um, but we have, uh, you know, there's been landmarks. People can marry whoever they want now. Uh, love is, you know, allowed, which is awesome, things of that nature. Um, so in some steps, we made societal movement forward, um, but from an economic standpoint, shit has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And, you know, it'll always be that argument of like, well, stop buying iPhones and shit like that. And it's just the difference between globalism bringing the cost of fucking goods down, actual necessities like rent, uh, things of that nature have eclipsed uh, income uh, as far as percentage of the old things. Well, and I, I think it ties back into what we were just talking about, the, the tension between the micro and the mi macro, the tension between progressive pro-capitalist movements versus anti-capitalist movements, right? So people can talk about ending poverty by trying to um, make a f uh, housing more affordable, or they can talk about expanding food stamps, or they can talk about a jobs guarantee. And those are all things I'm not saying I'm against, but we have to understand, we have to keep in mind that all those things are in the context of a capitalist framework, which yeah. is, if that's what we want to do, that's fine. But we also have to remember that because of climate change, 
in my opinion, capitalism is not sustainable, right? And so, you, you know, we have to decide, does it make more sense to put energy into these progressive pro-capitalist things that will undoubtedly assist a lot of people or in the short term, or do we need to work right now on trying to do anti-capitalist measures right now to try for the long term and realize that um, we might not be able to help people immediately or try to do both. You know, I'm trying to do both would be, I think, most ideal, but I might change my opinion over that on that over time. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I would. <clears throat> it's just how much can you triage? Like, right. You just get into that counterbalance. Like if you do both, is it the cost of one working? Uh, yeah. It's really, really hard shit to figure out, I guess. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, no, but no, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you. To reclaim a real political agency means first of all accepting our in- insertion at the level of desire in the remorseless meat grinder of capital. What is being disavowed in the abjection of evil and ignorance onto phantasmic others is our own complicity in planetary networks of oppression. What needs to be kept in mind is both that capitalism is a hyper abstract impersonal structure and that it would be nothing without our cooperation. The most Gothic description of capital is also the most accurate. Capital is an abstract, is an abstract parasite and insatiable vampire and zombie maker but the living flesh it converts into dead labor is ours and the zombies it makes are us there is a sense in which it simply is the case that the political elite are our servants the miserable service they provide from us is to launder our libidos to obligingly represent for us, our disavowed desires as if they had nothing to do with us. The ideological blackmail that has been in place since the original Live Aid concerts in 1985 has insisted that caring individuals can end famine directly without the need for any kind of political solution or systemic reorganization. It is necessary to act straight away we were told politics has to be suspended in the name of ethical immediacy. Bono's product red brand wanted to dispense even with the philanthropic philanthropic uh, intermediary. Philanthropy is like hippie music holding hands, Bono proclaimed. Red is more like punk rock, hip hop. This should feel like hard commerce. The point was not to offer an alternative to capitalism. On the contrary, Product Red's punk rock or hip hop character consisted in its in its realistic uh, uh, acceptance that capitalism is the only game in town. No, the aim was only to ensure that some of the proceeds of particular transactions went to good causes. The fantasy being that Western consumerism 
far from being intrinsically implicated in systemic global inequalities, could itself solve them. All we have to do is buy the right products. The, fuck, dude. The answer was there the whole time. And uh, I guess we just couldn't see it. We what just do you mean? Buying. Oh, the right oh yeah. Yeah. Buying shit. Uh, yeah. It's. Uh, but I mean, it, it's easy to make fun of, but like we all get caught up in that, that trap of like, of, um, you know, buying like uh, fair trade coffee or whatever, yeah. you know, oh. and, 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 um, and it goes back to, uh, you know, what Zizek was saying about, well, you know, uh, I understand this system sucks. I am, you know, and I do this all the time and I do it intentionally being like, okay, but I'm going to buy this product because it was made this way to like um, reduce the harm uh, that it's causing. And then I, I feel good about myself and, and, and continue on with my day, which is, is better than not caring at all. But the argument I think Zizek and, and others are making is that it's not enough. Well, and it's just, yeah. it also like anything and, and what these movements do so often with like charities, uh, large scale donations to places like Africa and things of that nature. Um, is that when you let it come from the hands of capital, they're not going to, to me, one of the main uh, antagonists of a neoliberal or uh, just a strong capitalism is bureaucratic oversight. And so when these people use these sorts of charities and stuff, they kind of just plop the money down and then dip out and pat themselves on the back. Um, and I don't have uh, exact examples, but I know I'm also not making this up in places you know, like Rwanda and stuff, this sort of thing happened where they would donate large amounts of food, uh, but it wouldn't get to the people because a warlord would just take it. Uh, and then, so now not only does this warlord have control over the resources, he's actually giving it away that dismantles actual people who are participating in agriculture and shit like that. Um, so if you go around just throwing money at problems, but you don't add in that bureaucratic oversight, um, then realistically, uh, you're making more problems instead of helping anything at its core. Uh, that's one of my main issues with capitalism is that it is it wants to do everything without oversight. It doesn't want environmental regulations. It doesn't want anything that could get in the way of more capital being produced. And I intrinsically think that there are so many things that profit shouldn't be the motive um, and that there should be, you know, bureaucratic oversight to how this shit goes down. Uh, disbursement of funds, disbursement of all kinds of things. I think if you could find a way to have that bureaucratic oversight not be attached to a profit margin, a lot of things would look a lot better. That, that, that would definitely help in, in the framework of capitalism, right? Like you could definitely yes. do a, instead of bureaucratic, I'll, I'll say a democratic oversight that is dispersing funds. Now, the, the anti-capitalist argument would be, let's make a system, let's create a system where you don't need money, that, that, that food is a human right, and that we are, instead of using money to, to do this, we are going to set up some sort of system, whether it be labor vouchers or whatever, um, and to make sure that every human being gets you know food, housing, water, healthcare, right? Yeah. Um, and so trying to balance those two is like um, those two perspectives, which, like I said, they're both 
uh, I would argue that they're both uh, relevant and um, yeah. to a certain extent, but to try not, to not bounce them. Yeah. I don't want to say it sound like I'm knocking people for trying to help. Uh, at no point do I think that if there is an intention to help those in need, that something bad is happening. It's just, you know, the problem with a lot of these charities is that my grandma, for instance, donates a lot of money to charity uh, and a losing battle that me and my father and my uncle have been in is researching these charities and trying to let her know there are websites that just rate charities as far as like how much percentage they use for their actual charitable cause. No exaggeration, at least 70% of the charities that my grandma donates to don't even actually function as charities. Mm -hmm. um, they are, lots of them are not nonprofit. It's just a, a ridiculous kind of field. So then the problem is with no oversight, it's the bad ones can do the same as the good one, in which case people can be like, well, fuck charity, man. It doesn't do anything. Right. Well, and, and then you have, you know, situations like the, the Gates Foundation, which a lot <laughs> of people would point to as like a good thing, but they have more money now than when they started the charity. And the point of the charity was to get rid of the majority of their funds, right? Um, yeah. And when you drive it down, you know, whatever boulevard on Seattle and you see their building, right? It's clear that that's not going away anytime soon. That was yeah. built to be an institution, right? Yes. That wasn't built to to end once the, the gates are dead. That is, I mean... Right you know, they literally imported uh, marble from Italy, right? Mm -hmm. For for the facades of the building. So that, and it's like uh, the size of a city block. So it's yeah. clear that that institution intends on staying there, right? And that And that is part of the problem, in my opinion, from looking at this from the framework of, uh, like, how can we fix this inside of capitalism rather than how can we get rid of capitalism so that this isn't an issue. You get what I'm saying? Oh, you know, it's always ironic when your shrines to helping people are uh, made out of rare materials uh, and shit that those people could never have access to. That's how you know you're doing a good job is when you can display the wealth behind what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there are, you know, some great charities. I'm going to shout it out because I was so impressed uh, after researching through Doctors Without Borders. Anybody out there wants to give money to a fucking charity that spends every penny on its charitable cause. Doctors Without Borders is tight. Food Not Bombs is tight too. I'm into Food Not Bombs. Hell yeah. Dude, I am, uh, that was the end of the chapter, right? Yeah, I say we cut it here. I'm back doing an outro because Paul and I didn't really think to wrap the episode up. We just, or I should say, I just, stopped recording and uh, we just went on about our days and so I wanted to put a bow on it or tie a bow on it or put the the cherry on top so to speak this chapter well like the whole book was was really strong it was fun being able to as opposed to the chapter before the first chapter, it was fun being able to do the chapter in in one episode, um, just to have everything wrapped up. And it was, like I said, like every other episode or like every other chapter of Capitalist Realism, very impactful. Hope you enjoyed it and hope you join us for the rest of this work by Mark Fisher. Thank you.